Well, when I graduated college uh, in 2004, I loaded up a backpack and I set out for Asia. And I spent months traveling throughout India uh, and Nepal uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, when I was in Nepal, uh, I backpacked to the base camp of Mount Everest, high up in the Himalayas, uh, up to 18,000 feet. And on my way uh, to the base camp of Everest, uh, I spent the night uh, beside a monastery called Tengboshe. That night um, that I was spending uh, in Tengboshe, I woke up around 1 o'clock in the morning, really having to, like, really having to go to the bathroom, really having to pee. And since we're high up in the Himalayas, I put on some boots, I put on uh, some, a coat, some gloves, a hat, and I walked outside. Well, as I stepped out into the darkness and I sort of got my bearings, I looked up and then I fell down. Because as soon as I looked up, I saw more stars than I had ever seen in my life. Crystal clear. Um, I saw for the first time the heavens. And it, it made me dizzy. I got vertigo. There was an immediate like, tunneling of my vision. It sort of whooshed up and I sort of felt the sensation of falling down. And I literally had to crawl back to the hut that I was sleeping in and pull myself into uh, my sleeping bag. And I was afraid to look up again because it terrified me. The sensation just scared me. It was an awful experience in the truest sense of the word. It was so beautiful, uh, so immense, so awesome that I literally could not stand it. The prophet Isaiah, who we just read about in Isaiah chapter 6, had a very similar experience in the temple of God one day. Uh, Today's story begs the question, what is it like to have a real encounter with the real God? That experience can be summed up like this. Two woes and a go. There's a woe, W-H-O-A, a woe, W-O-E, and a go, G-O-G-H. Geo, right? Woe, woe, and go. First, this, this first woe, W-H-O-A. In the year that King Uzziah died, which is in the 800 B.C.s, in that time of year, Isaiah entered the temple and he had his socks knocked off. Right? He sees God in a new light and this vision completely bowls him over. Look at verse 1 with me. Uh, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In this vision, Isaiah sees some things and he hears some things. And I want to begin by zeroing in on these angelic creatures called seraphim. I want you to pay attention to what they look like. And I want you to pay attention to what their bodies might say about the environment that they are in. For example, if you were to look at a skeleton of a giraffe, or if you were to go to the Natural History Museum and see a fossil of a brontosaurus, Right, the bones of these creatures say to us, right, like there was an abundance of food high up, hence the long necks. 
If you were to look at the stripes of a tiger or a zebra, it shows us something about the environment. Surely they live in grassland or a savanna. What did the seraphim, what, the way that they look, what does that tell us about the environment that they're in? Well, they have six wings, don't they? Two to fly with, but four others. Two to cover their face and two to cover their feet. Two to cover their face because they are in the presence of God and it is so bright and it is so brilliant that they need wings, right, to cover themselves. And they need wings to cover their feet lest they defile anything. They are not in the perfect present, but they are in the presence of the perfect. It's a little joke for you English majors. They're not in the perfect present, but in the presence of the perfect. Isaiah sees these seraphim and he hears them singing a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. When I wrote these words on this sheet of paper that I'm preaching from, right, I did so using a computer and using a word processor, right, Microsoft Word. On MS Word, there are lots of tools that you and I can use to emphasize something. We can uh, change fonts. We can embolden certain words. We can italicize them. We can underline them. If we're really feeling crazy, we can highlight them and change the, the color right, of the text itself. We have all kinds of tools to call attention to things that are important. Well, the Hebrews didn't have these tools. right? I don't have to tell you that the Bible was not written on MS Word or Google Drive, right? Google Docs. For Isaiah and his Hebrew friends, if you wanted to emphasize something, you had to repeat it. You would say it twice. So, for example, uh, in Hebrew, there are pits, like the hole you might dig in my backyard, and then there are pit pits, like the Grand Canyon. There's gold, maybe like your earrings, and then there's gold gold, which is the purest gold that might get locked up in a safer be behind some glass with security cameras in the Smithsonian. This is how the Hebrew language works. If you want to make something great, if you want to emphasize it, you say it twice. And this, you see this a lot uh, as you read uh, the scriptures. It doesn't come across in the English, right? but if you were to read it in the Hebrew, you would see this. This is the only time and the only place in the entire Old Testament where you have a word repeated three times. The only time, the only place a word gets repeated three times in the entire Old Testament is right here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. In other words, He is so much bigger. He is so much better He is so much grander than anything you can imagine. His power, his beauty, his wisdom, his justice, his love, all of it and all of him, infinitely and perfectly beyond compare. He is holy, holy, holy. But that is not all. Right? The, the seraphim are singing, the whole earth is full of his glory. The word that gets translated glory is the Hebrew word kabod, a word that literally means weight. God's glory is his weightiness. It's his permanence. 
is gravity. Everything else gives way to God. Everything else revolves around him. If you drop a baseball into a bowl of Fruit Loops, the Fruit Loops fly out of the bowl, right? Because the baseball has more gravity. It has more weight. It has more glory. It moves the Fruit Loops to the side. If you crash your bicycle into an oak tree, the bicycle wraps itself around the tree. Why? Because the oak tree has more glory. It has more permanence, more weight. It does not move around the bicycle. The bicycle moves around it. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters the holy, holy, holiness of God, and he beholds his glory. He has a woe moment. From this point on, God ceases to be an abstraction to Isaiah. He is a concrete reality. He is an awe-inspiring reality. And it changes him. And changes him forever. There is a difference, friends, between knowing there is a God and actually knowing God. There is a difference between knowing God conceptually as an idea. Sort of like as a philosophical construct. And knowing God as he really is, as holy, 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 as the glorious one. And Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, is very helpful at this point. He asks, what's the difference between a concept and a reality? I'll tell you, it's all a matter of glory. God as a concept is lighter than you. When you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. You shape him. It fits in around your existing patterns. It doesn't move you around. It doesn't quake you. It doesn't make you say, whoa. If you believe in God and he hasn't changed you very much, odds are he's just a concept to you. Simply put, you have more glory than the God concept. You shape the God concept. The God concept does not shape you. The God concept is lighter than you. He fits into you. He works around your schedule. And a God like that is impotent. He will not challenge your uh, existing beliefs. He will never contradict you or say no to you. He will never make you change. Because he can't. A God, a God concept can't. It can't because you are more glorious than the God concept. All that is to say, if that's what you've got, you haven't really encountered God. Not really. Because every single person who has really met God knows and can remember and is aware of a time in their life when God ceased to be a concept and became a glorious reality. They've had a woe moment. I want you to consider this. Uh, The distance between planet Earth and the sun. Anybody have a clue what the distance is? It's 93 million miles. Yes, Ethan. (laughs) You are exactly right. Boom. It's 93 million miles. Now, I want you to imagine that this, the thickness of this sheet of paper is 93 million miles. Okay? Imagine the distance between the Earth and the sun 
is the sheet of this paper, 93 million miles. Do you know uh, if we were to stack up the papers, the distance between planet Earth and the, nearest, the, the, the second nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And using the same scale, one piece of paper equals 93 million miles. 93 million mile, miles. The diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. It just blows our mind. And that's just one galaxy. That's just the Milky Way. In the observable universe, there are over 100 billion galaxies. And the Bible says that God, Jesus himself, holds it all in the palm of his hand. Spoke it into existence. Is this the kind of God you ask into your life to be your assistant? When the real God comes into your life, when you actually get into the presence of the real deal, things give way in your life to his glory. And if this has not happened or is not happening now in some degree, God is still just a concept to you. You haven't been wowed. You haven't been woed. Everyone who's truly met God has had a woe moment. Everyone who has truly met God knows he has more glory than he or she. He gets to shape you. He gets to call the shots. We fit into his life. He doesn't fit into ours. They've had a woe moment, W-H-O-A, but they've also had a woe moment, W-O-E. Some of you know uh, from experience of going to the movies with me, and some of you know this because I've told you this before. But I'm a messy eater uh, in movie theaters. Uh, I get the big uh, butter popcorn, and inevitably I run out of napkins. So what happens is I do this a lot. Rub them on my pants. I fumble a Reese's Pieces or a, a Junior Mint, and it sort of melts to my butt. And in the darkness of the movie theater, I don't really notice. And I look around... And I feel like I'm pretty good. I'm enjoying the film. It's awesome. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not self-conscious. <laughs> I feel okay. But as soon as I step into the light of the movie theater lobby, I discover just how awful I am. Uh, woe is me. Right? I'm filthy. Uh, there's butter stains on my pants. I've got peanut butter melted to my backside. I'm undone. I'm not well. I am not clean. <laughs> Well, this is Isaiah's experience. Uh, He has his initial woe experience, W-H-O-A. God is awesome. But then there is the second woe experience. Woe is me. Leaving the dark of the theater and stepping into the brilliance of God's light, Isaiah realizes, I am not okay. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost. I'm screwed. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What is this second woe all about? What does Isaiah mean when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips? Well, it first of all means that he has an unclean heart. Our lips reveal what is going on inside of our heart. 
If you were to think of the human heart as a mountain pool, our lips would be the waterfall. Or if you think of our heart as an underground spring, our lips would be the river or the, or the brook that is above ground. What originates there in the heart comes out here. If it's polluted there, it's going to be polluted out here. If it's clean there, it's going to be clean here. All that is to say to be a man or to be a people of unclean lips is to be a man or people with polluted hearts. Corrupted hearts. But there's another dimension to this woe. Standing in God's presence completely undoes Isaiah. It completely shatters his ego. If you read the, the book of Isaiah, you will recognize right away that this man is a genius. He is a poetic genius. And he is a poetic genius living in an oral culture. All that is to say is that Isaiah's mouth was golden in the same way that Usain's, Usain Bolt's feet uh, are fast. He's the best. He thinks he's golden-tongued. He thinks he's fast. And then he gets in God's presence and he realizes, I'm muddy-mouthed and I'm clay-footed. I'm nothing. Right? I'm lost. Even the best part about me looks pitiful in the presence of this one. He is completely humbled. He's completely laid low. Uh, some, uh, if you go to Suco um, Summer Conference with us, you might have the chance to meet a campus minister named Sammy Rhodes. He's a, he's a campus minister at USC for RUF, University of South Carolina. And he tells this story uh, about his daughter, who from a very early age just loved to dance. Age two, three, four, five, she's just dancing all of the time. Well, one day the Rhodes family is invited to go to a wedding. And they say, yeah, we'd love to go. So they go, and his daughter sees a bunch of teenagers dancing on the dance floor. Well, instead of joining them on the dance floor, she runs away and runs back to the car weeping. And Sammy goes to the car, and he finds her sobbing in the back seat of the car and says, what's wrong? Between sobs, she gets out. They're better dancers than me. I want to go home. We've all had a similar experience, right? You think you're smart. You think you're fast. You think you're beautiful. You think you're successful. And inevitably, you meet and are surrounded by people who are smarter, faster, better looking, more successful than you. And being in that presence of the superlative, it undoes you. Megan and I were watching uh, Parks and Rec last night, and the timing of this episode was perfect because it's the episode where Leslie Nope goes to Washington. Right, it's, the beginning of episode, it's the beginning of season five. She has just won. She's just become like city councilwoman. Her, her dream of becoming like a councilwoman has finally come true. She is living large. Like she's at the top of her game. And then what does she do? She moves to or she goes to Washington, D.C., and it undoes her. Uh, ben White, her boyfriend, invites her to this swanky D.C. cocktail party at the Hay Adams. And Leslie meets Senators Barbara Boxer and Olivia Snow, apparently number four and number 26 in Leslie's list of amazing women. And she introduces herself uh, to these senators and says, 
I am a city councilwoman from Pawnee, Indiana. You've probably never heard of us. We're small and unimportant. Olivia Snow, trying to be polite, says, I'm sure that's not true. She says, but it is. We have tons of problems. We're overrun with raccoons and obese toddlers. Anyway, (laughs) you are my role models, an incredibly amazing woman, and it's an honor to meet you. And trailing off, holding back tears, she runs to a coat closet and she begins to cry. She thought she was great. City councilwoman, Pawnee, Indiana. And then she finds herself in a room with a bunch of big shots. And she realizes, I'm not that important. And it undoes her. Right? She, she's not excited to meet number four and number 26 in her list. It actually cripples her and sends her cowering into a closet. If we are undone by excellence at a human level, how much more so are we when we compare ourselves to the holy, 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 all-glorious God? It undoes you. It it undid Isaiah. Woe is me. If you have not had that woe, W-H-O-A moment, and you haven't had this woe moment, W-O-E, you have not yet met the real God. Not yet. Not yet. What's remarkable about this passage is what happens next. When Isaiah says, woe, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. God doesn't say to him, Isaiah, stop being so hard on yourself. Right? You need more self-esteem. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, you're right, get out of here. Instead, an angel takes a coal from an altar an altar always being a place of sacrifice, and he flies over to Isaiah with this fire. And I imagine at this moment, Isaiah is like, oh crap, here it comes, I'm screwed, as he sees this angel bring fire to him. Have you ever seen uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? They open the ark and fire flies out, and all these Nazis, their faces melt off. It's a pretty awesome scene. (laughs) That's not what happens here. Right When fire comes to Isaiah, it doesn't burn his face off. It heals him. And it probably stings uh, at first, but then it's okay. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. You know, what is going on here? You know, one moment Isaiah is crushed. He's cowering in a coat closet like Leslie Nope. He's undone. The next moment he's back on his feet, not crushed, not cowering, but standing and standing up in God's presence. He's fine. He's okay being there. What happened? What gives? Well, the secret to the answer to that question has everything to do with the coal that touched his lips and where it came from. It came from an altar. Now, as I mentioned to you, an altar is where sacrifices take place. In other words, a sacrifice has been made. And on the basis of that sacrifice, Isaiah was healed. That sacrifice was applied to him where he needed it the most. And he was healed. Made okay to stand in God's presence. What on earth are we talking about? What sacrifice could take away Isaiah's sins, heal him, and make him good again, make him fit for God's presence? Well, it's none other than the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he died for the forgiveness of yours and my sins and Isaiah's too. 
The Bible says repeatedly, repeatedly, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one truly seeks for God. All have turned aside. Everyone has become worthless. Everyone has unclean hearts and lips. We are all undone. We all fall short of God's glory. It's not just woe is me, it's woe is we. The Bible is super clear about this. But this is not all that the Bible has to say. In Romans 3, where it says this, no one is righteous, we've all become worthless, we've all turned aside. It says this too, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And we are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as a propitiatory sacrifice to take away God's wrath, and that is to be received by faith. Listen to what the Bible has to say. The Bible says we are all sinners, that we all deserve to die, that we are all people of unclean lips, of polluted hearts. But the Bible also says that the Son of God was willing to become a man, to live a perfect life on your behalf, and to take the punishment that your sins deserve in your place. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is your perfect, spotless righteousness. Jesus is your substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the sacrifice that saves Isaiah's life and saves your life and indeed saves the world. Isaiah has this woe moment and then he has this other woe moment. But instead of being banished and instead of being destroyed, Isaiah gets healed. He confesses his unworthiness and he experiences divine mercy. Amazing grace. His sins atoned for. Melted peanut butter cups covered. Shame and guilt gone. Here's how you know you've met the God of the Bible. You've had a woe moment and a, a woe moment. But the second moment doesn't undo you. When you confess your unworthiness, when you confess your need of grace, you find right away that God has got you covered. God has got you covered because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. And this leads us to our third and final point of tonight's sermon. Woe leads to woe, but these in turn lead to go. As soon uh, as Isaiah's sins are atoned for, as soon as he is healed, the very next verse, verse 8, we hear God asking, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Listen to the pronouns there. One God, whom shall I send? But within the Godhead, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, having a conversation. Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, go. I got a message, go. Woe leads to woe leads to go. When Isaiah goes to work in verses 9 and following, 
He goes to work not to get God's favor, not to get forgiveness, but because he's already received favor, because he has been forgiven already. That is to say, Isaiah is not doing this job to get something from God. He's doing this because he's received from God more than he could ever ask for. He's not operating out of emptiness, but fullness. Not out of lack, but out of abundance. What is motivating Isaiah from this point on is not fear of failure or fear of rejection or fear of punishment. That does not motivate Isaiah. He's already seen that he's imperfect. He's already seen that he falls far short of God's glory. But he has also experienced amazing grace. He's experienced forgiveness. And this in spite of his sins, in spite of his imperfections. God is there to heal him and to accept him and remarkably even to use him for his good purposes in the world. And consequently, Isaiah is motivated. Like I said, not for, he's not motivated by fear. He's not motivated uh, in order to be accepted to avoid punishment, but he is motivated by thanksgiving. He is motivated by joy. He is motivated by God's glory. And he is motivated by God's grace. I don't know if you caught this uh, in verses 9 through 13, but Isaiah's job description isn't that hot. I mean, essentially God is saying to him, look, I've got a really important message for you to deliver. But nobody's going to hear what you have to say. You, who might be used to praise and acclaim because of your golden tongue, well, I want to use your golden tongue. But you're going to be rejected a whole lot. And things are going to get far worse before they get better. But I will see my work through to the end. That's essentially 9 through 13. Still, Isaiah takes the job. You know, he's not deterred. We know he takes the job because there are 60 more chapters in the book of Isaiah. Right? He doesn't care if the job is awesome or not because he knows that the God he's working for is. He isn't doing it for the money. He isn't doing it for the praise of man. He's doing the work God called him to do because that's the greatest reward that there is. And God has good work prepared for you too. Whom shall I send to teach low-income students in inner-city schools? Who will go for us? Who shall I send into the courtroom to defend the rights of the poor, protect victims of injustice? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send to India and Thailand and even America's inner cities to liberate sex slaves and children forced into indentured servitude? Who will go for us? Who shall I send into business to come up with creative solutions to our environmental crisis? Who will go for us? Who shall I send into hospitals and clinics 
not just here in the United States, but all over the globe to heal the sick and to comfort the dying. Who will go for us? Look, here's how you know you've had an encounter with the real God. He's not just a concept to you. You've had a woe moment. You've had a woe is me moment. And a go moment as well. You see, God is glorious. You see, God is gracious. And you see that God has good work for you to do. And it's with that in mind that I want you to go. Go into your final exams. Go into the remainder of your studies here at the university. And then go out into the world to spread his peace. It has been an incredible semester uh, with you, not just here on Wednesday nights. I've enjoyed coffees and lunches with you. I've enjoyed spending time with you in our home over meals. I've enjoyed going on bike rides and walks and talking with you. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know you better. I hope you have grown closer to Jesus. I hope that you've seen him as more beautiful and believable this semester. I hope that you've grown closer to the people beside you, um, that, that you have found friends in this room. And I do pray that you've been able to connect some of these dots um, that we've been talking about to see that, yeah, we're not playing philosophical games here. This, if this is real, this really does make a difference in your life. Right? We're talking about reality, the story that you are a part of uh, and that I'm a part of too. Um, thank you. We love you. Look forward to another semester. I pray.